Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Good morning everyone, my name's Robert, Um, I'm one of the pastors here at South London and we are in the process of doing a, a series through the book of Acts and we're looking at the history of the early church and today we're starting a kind of another mini-series within our larger series, and it's the Council at Jerusalem. The Council at Jerusalem. And our topic for today is contending vigorously for the faith. Contending vigorously for the faith. And we're going to be looking at chapter 15, verse 1 through to verse 5. Not going to be doing much today. It's kind of in way of preparation and foundation for the rest of the chapter and actually for the rest of the book. So I'm going to start reading. If you'd like to join me, I'm reading from the ESV, chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, last week, we saw the completion of the first missionary journey. And it was to the island of Cyprus, if you remember, and then from Cyprus up to Galatia, which is in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and they were in Pamphylia, or the city of Perga, they moved up to Pisidian Antioch, as opposed to Syrian Antioch, which is where they came from, and then to Iconium, then to Lystra, and to Derbe. Then at the end of the last chapter, chapter 14, we saw Paul and Barnabas return. And if you like, they returned the way that they came. Apart from going to Cyprus on the way back, they just got the boat all the way from Perga straight to Antioch. 
So they go via all the places they stopped on their outward journey, on their return journey. Now cast your eyes to the beginning of the last chapter. I'll show you the end of the last chapter. That makes more sense. Verse 26 of chapter 14. Jumping into the verse. And they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had basically now fulfilled. Verse 27. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So, Paul and Barnabas had a very successful missions trip, seeing Jews as well as Gentiles, <clears throat> and particularly Gentiles, come to the faith. Now this was quite a new phenomenon. It's not new for us because we've been looking at it for quite some weeks, but to them, this was an absolutely new phenomenon, historically speaking. Yes, there had been Gentile converts before this point, who were also known as proselytes, who had shown an interest in Jehovah, the God of Israel, the Jewish God. And they'd been absorbed into Judaism. But now, based on this new report, the door of faith wasn't just being cracked to allow entry. It had literally been thrown wide open. And the trickle of Gentile converts was rapidly becoming an avalanche. And the fact that they were coming in wasn't so much the issue. It was how they were coming in. And this begins to pose a problem. The last verse of chapter 14, verse 28, says that Paul and Barnabas were giving themselves at this point to discipleship. Remember, they'd been on a long missionary journey. All of the disciples who were converted, they'd set them up as elders and they'd left those churches. But now they're back in their own church. Someone's got their hand up at the back. I thought he was asking a question. And they've come back to their home church and they're still doing the job that they started to do, which was make disciples. And so they're giving themselves to discipleship, giving themselves to mentoring, which has kind of become a bit of an important topic for us here at South London. You might have been here a few weeks ago when Mark was talking about discipleship from Matthew chapter 28. And it's really inspired us to become more um, focused with regard to not only discipleship, but also mentoring, particularly older guys with younger guys, older guys with even younger men. So just continue to pray about that so we can see the Lord develop that. So this is what Paul and Barnabas are doing. But a group of others had a different idea of what needed to be taught these new disciples. Chapter 15, looking at verse 1. It says, but. Apart, apart from the, the wonderful things that were happening, Paul and Barnabas teaching and instructing and developing these disciples. Chapter 15, verse 1, but. Some men came down from Judea. Now it says they came down from Judea. Judea is actually south, where this Syrian Antioch is north. But they say they went down because Jerusalem was much higher above sea level. And so 
technically they went down, but they actually went north up to this point in Antioch. And these brothers made this journey from Judea, presumably from the church in Jerusalem, right? And they were doing their own personally developed discipleship training course. See, and it says, and they were teaching the brothers. Now this sounds pretty encouraging. Teaching, instructing, educating the brothers. But listen to what they're teaching. They say, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, be like, it's, it's good to hear that you guys have embraced Christ. It's good to hear that you're trying to change your life. But don't forget that you need to be circumcised. You need to be circumcised. And furthermore, without that, and keeping the customs, you cannot be saved. So they don't sound very excited about what is going on, unless people are willing to submit to them in that sense. It's like, and, and something about this does not sound right. Now we're going to see in this chapter, the definition and then the redefinition of the gospel. Luke will now begin to make silent shifts of emphasis. The Jerusalem church still holds great credibility and authority. Because this is where it started, right? But yet this will be Peter's final appearance. He's actually going to begin to disappear now from the pages of Acts. With Paul becoming more prominent. Along with Jerusalem receding into the background with Antioch now, this church up north, this church that's a mixture of Jew and Gentile, is now going to become the main hub, the church at Antioch. And as Paul takes the gospel and pushes on beyond the, the Near East, which is where they're situated at the moment, into Europe as far as Italy and then its capital, Rome. As far as church history is concerned, we're talking about 1,400 years later and beyond. Because this is the first century. This chapter, chapter 15, that we're going to look at, proves to be crucial. In it, we will see a unanimous combined decision arrived at by, if you like, a joint chief of staff. Namely, the apostles and the elders of the church, which very helpfully sets the tone for all future gospel ministry. Now, verse 1 flags up a problem that we are still being confronted with today in the 21st century, let alone back in the dark ages, like the 14th, 15th, 16th century, let alone the first century. So let's look at it first in what they call it Sitzenleben or its context, its original context. Here at the church in Syrian Antioch, the tranquility and the harmony is shattered by the arrival of a group that Paul will later on call the troublemakers. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 through 7, Paul says, To these Galatians. Remember, he's just shared the gospel with them and a lot of them have got saved under his ministry. He writes to them in the book of Galatians and says, I'm astonished 
that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who, what? who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 7 through 10, it says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You see, and if it's contrasted with truth, it's not good. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Troublemakers. So these troublemakers came down from Judea to Paul and Barnabas' home church in Antioch. So you know that they're not going to be happy about this. Imagine someone coming, you know what I'm saying, to your church, the church that you've been involved in as a leader, developing, seeing people grow and come and go into leadership and go on and move on and develop. And then somebody wants to come in and spoil that? Particularly to the point where it, it could affect individuals' lives eternally? You're not coming to our home church, says Paul and Barnabas, to trouble us. Another name for them would be the circumcision party. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. Circumcision party, but there ain't nothing, nothing happy about this group. Galatians 2. Now, remember, Paul has just been preaching to the, to the Jews and the Gentiles in this area. And I've noted that your reading of Galatians at this time would be very beneficial as we go through this portion of the book of Acts. Because they relate specifically to one another. What you see going on in the book of Galatians relates exactly to what's happening here in chapter 14 slash 15. So, chapter 2, Galatians, verse 11 to 14. Now, okay, Paul is speaking, and this is a letter that he had just recently written to the believers in Galatia. Namely, again, those places that we mentioned, Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, etc. And now, on his return journey... At the end of the last chapter, chapter 14, Cephas, also known as who? Peter, Simon Peter, Cephas, same person. Peter comes for a visit. And then later on after Peter comes to visit Paul, the troublemakers and the circumcision party come. So bear that in mind as we read verse 11 of Galatians 2. But when Cephas came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned for, not condemned like he's going to hell, but condemned in that he was wrong, right? For before, you have to clarify that. For before, for before certain men, troublemakers, <laughs> I'm tempted, but I'm not going to go there. For before certain men, troublemakers came from James, who's down in Jerusalem or up in Jerusalem, 
And he was eating as Peter with the Gentiles. But when they came, he, Peter, drew back and separated himself, fearing who? The circumcision party. And the rest of the, check it. You've got to remember, Peter is very influential. This is the Apostle Peter. Very influential to the point where verse 13 and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. This is deep. Can you see just how much trouble the troublemakers are causing? Verse 14, but Paul says, When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, I said to Peter before them all publicly, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, when the Jews are not around, that is, How can you force the Gentiles now to live like Jews? You're a hypocrite. Because you do one thing when the Gentiles are around and the Jews ain't around. As soon as your brethren and the Jews come, the circumcision, the troublemakers, you go side with them. What's that all about? See? And this group, they were, quote unquote, Christian Pharisees. Who were zealous for the law. And they were not just calling for the new Gentile converts to be circumcised, if that wasn't enough. Look at verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Check it necessary it's not like recommended necessary to order them King James says command them to keep I mean these sound a little bit like commandments don't they so it wouldn't be unfair to refer to these as legalists who put who put an Overemphasis on the law. Another term for them would be Judaizers. I mean, this is a group that you've got lots of names for. Judaizers. But what makes this group really complicated and dangerous is that they believe in Jesus. They believe in Jesus, but not just in Jesus they believe that Jesus is important and vital for salvation but trust in Jesus is incomplete Jesus alone is insufficient for salvation it's Jesus plus something now you might say well what's the big deal about that don't say that and make Paul hear you see Jesus alone is insufficient for salvation. It's Jesus plus something. And these Jewish believers were now targeting newly saved Gentiles. It's interesting how some are more willing to let others do the evangelizing only to prey upon these new converts with their distorted doctrines. Now I'm going to tell you a personal story relating to this in a minute. 
Now this group are not helpful. And then to have check it, the Apostle Peter join with this Jewish extremist pressure group. I mean, how confusing. You'd be like, we've been listening to Paul for ages. He's, he's really helped us in understanding not only who Christ is, but who Christ is in light of the Old Testament. And we thought we were getting it. All of a sudden now there's this next group and the Apostle Peter. Yeah, and yeah, you're right. Peter was an apostle before Paul. It's like, but they're on opposing extremities. Which one do we follow? I mean, talk about confusing. Even to the point where Barnabas, I mean, Barnabas was the one who brought Paul when he was Saul, remember? Barnabas gets carried away with this. Now, this is serious. But check it. Thank God, I tell you. But Paul strongly, vigorously, fearlessly opposes them all. Verse 14, but when I saw their conduct, that it was not in step with the truth of the gospel, Paul very keenly identified that this added requirement of circumcision was heresy. Indeed, it was the introduction of another gospel. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1. Verse 6, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. Oh my, I mean, that's strong language. That you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. And just in case you never got it the first time, let me repeat myself, says Paul. Verse 9. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary. The man says, even if an angel from heaven, and I'm going to make reference to a group that actually do make reference to an angel that came down from heaven that affects their doctrine. And they do exactly what Paul says don't do. <laughs> He's heavy. He says, verse 10, for am I now seeking the approval of man? Or of God? Or am I trying to please man? Well, if I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. I mean, Paul is impeccable. And we know that it wasn't Paul. It was the, the spirit of God that was at work in Paul. Paul is a rude boy, but it's really the Holy Spirit that's working in him. But straight up to look at him, he ain't having it. And he stands up and he contends for the faith vigorously. To the point where Paul's strong opposition to error among the saints, including Peter, played a crucial role in helping, particularly Peter, we're going to see next week, and then Barnabas and others to see this matter much more clearly. Next week we will see 
that Paul's rebuke radically adjusts Peter's hypocrisy. That's why we need to, we need to be prepared to rebuke and we need to be prepared to be rebuked. Because it's healthy for us. And I'm saying, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Open rebuke is better than love that is hidden. See, and this helps us today. Because with the prospect of, I mean, having to be circumcised as an adult, Obviously, this becomes an issue. <laughs> see, <laughs> see, is trusting Jesus enough? Well, trusting in Jesus definitely means that we live differently, right? But not in the sense that we live differently in order to climb a ladder of acceptance to God. Or... We don't live differently in order to give us or grant us acceptance. We don't live differently to protect our standing with him. Faith in Jesus, now that might sound contradictory. Faith in Jesus, I'm saying, is all we need for our acceptance. Think of an adopted child. This child is taken home by their new parent. Wonderful, look at this new environment. There's security, there's love, there's affection. And the parents say, in conjunction with all of this, which is all yours now, in conjunction with this, we actually have some house rules. Like tidying up your room, and like helping out with the dishes, and like taking out the rubbish. See now, This child, in view of these instructions, can obey these rules, but in two different ways. And you must grasp this as a believer. It's vitally important. Your salvation depends upon it. There's two ways this child can now respond to the parents based on these rules that they've now been given. They could keep the rules thinking, whoa. I better keep these rules, you know, if I want to stay in this house. You know what? I know keeping these rules is how I protect my relationship with my parents. You know what? Keeping these rules is how I stay as their child. And if I don't, then I'm under threat. Now imagine if another child is adopted and brought into that household and instructed by the present child who says, you know what? You see all this good stuff in there? Let me tell you something. If you want to keep a hold of it, you had better obey these rules or you're out. Now that's one way that child can interpret these rules. Here's the other way. The child can interpret these rules. See, is just knowing that they are accepted and that their position is secure. If you like, before we even give you the rules, the child's like, hmm, regardless 
of what comes next, I know that I'm in this house. This is my house. I never bought it. I don't know how they built it. But you know what? This is my house. Because my parents own it. And because I belong to them, this is mine. Regardless of what comes next. See? And this child says, Wow. There's rules. Okay. Up. I see the rules. But I'm happy to keep the rules. Not because I want to stay in the house. Because that's already a done deal. I'm going to keep the rules because I really want to please you, my parents. See, this, this child knows what it takes to make the parents happy as opposed to make the parents sad. And it blesses this child to see their parents pleased. But it's got nothing to do with It's got nothing to do with being accepted because that's already dealt with. They would not have adopted me if they didn't accept me. See? It's obedience based upon acceptance and assurance as opposed to obedience in order to maintain my assurance. Now, can you see the difference? You don't do it to be accepted, but you do it because you are accepted. Well, this group of Christian Pharisees, the circumcision party, they had the first mindset. Do you remember the the parable about the prodigal son? He said the prodigal son was, was vexed because the other son wasn't keeping the rules. I've kept the rules. On that basis, I should be blessed and benefited. See? Because that's the flip side. That's when you've got a child who's willing to keep the rules, but now they're keeping the rules. They're saying, I, ex- I deserve this. You see, and now you begin to move into an area that's... Re- it's just as dangerous, you know what I'm saying, this side of the extreme as that side of the extreme, but we don't identify it sometimes when it's this side of the extreme. We only really identify it when it's that side of the extreme. Like, you're really off-key. Like, you're living in this house, and you think that, you think that because what, you take the rubbish out and you, you, you wash a couple of dishes, that you... Dis- See, but, but we can bring this into our relationship with God to the point where... I have not sinned for 14 years. And I'm saying, now whether you did or you didn't ain't the issue. I mean, you did, but that's not the issue. The issue is you think that because of the wonderful way that you have conducted your life, that now God owes you something. Now, I'm I'm definitely getting ahead of myself. See? This group of Christian, quote-unquote, Pharisees had this twisted mindset that we must do these things. We must 
add to the kindness of our newly adopted Heavenly Father in order to receive approval. He has brought us in, but in order for us to stay in, we must keep these associated laws. Actually, we must keep these laws in order for us to get in, let alone stay in. You must keep the law. Beginning with circumcision. To protect your status. It's a part of what gains us acceptance with God. And not only have we done it, you must also do it, they say. And at this, and at this point, we find that they are adding to the gospel. They were saying, yes, believe in Jesus. They were saying, yes, that gets you forgiveness. And you must do this. Rather than stopping at believe in Jesus. That is for your acceptance and your forgiveness. Now this is a contradiction to the gospel. Acts chapter 13. Here's a few verses. Acts 13 verse 39. Through him, that is Jesus... Everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Now that's a good scripture. You see the contrast? Galatians chapter 2 verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. But through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Galatians 3 verse 11 says, now it is evident. <laughs> I know it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Incidentally, these Judaizers, these troublemakers, have got it completely wrong on another account. They talk about circumcision as if it was introduced by Moses. It wasn't Moses that introduced circumcision. Was it? It was Abraham. Turn with me to Romans chapter 4. This is absolute bedrock foundation to your faith as a Christian. I mean, Romans chapter 4, starting at verse 1. What then shall we say? was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. <laughs> but not before God. I mean, you can boast, right? But Verse 3, for what does the scripture say? It says, Abraham believed God. Full stop, you know. No works. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, 
but as his due. See, so the person who says, no, 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 I don't want salvation as a gift, thank you very much. I'm prepared to work for it. I mean, there, there actually are two ways to be justified. There are two ways to be saved. There are two ways for you to be made righteous. One is to put your faith and trust in Jesus alone. And the second way is for you to keep the law perfectly. I mean, that's, that's the choice. And he says, look, to the one who says, you know what, I don't need it as a gift, I'm prepared to work for it. Okay, well, you know what, whatever you get now is not a gift. <laughs> you're, getting, you're getting payment for your work that you did. Verse 5, and to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And really the point through Romans is, there is none righteous, no, not one. For we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Including everyone, excluding no one. So verse, forget that verse, just, just read over verse 4, ignore verse 4. Apart from for the educational benefit. Verse 5 is you and me. And you want to be justified. It's about putting your faith in Christ. Because on that basis you will be made righteous. Verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness. Check it apart from works. Drop down to verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the... Now here's my point. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Remember what they're saying? They're saying, you cannot be saved unless you're circumcised. But Paul seems to be saying something else and it's not Paul. Paul's quote in Genesis. He says, how then was it counted to him? Was it before he was circumcised or was it after? Was he made righteous before or was he made righteous after he got circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised, the end of verse 10. Before. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision, the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being, I mean, I couldn't make it any, Paul, you couldn't make it any clearer. The Old Testament couldn't make it any clearer of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. That's us. And to make him Abraham, the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Talk about labor in the point. See, Abraham was saved. He was justified. He was made righteous. Then he was circumcised. Not the other way around. So get back to our text. The church at Antioch wisely determined that this debate had raised a vitally important theological question.
question. One that the apostles in Jerusalem needed to be brought in on in order to arrive at the answer. This is big things. These are the two largest churches on the planet. And they're saying, you know what? This is, we got to sort this out. Because we got good people saying the wrong thing. Or should I say, we got good people saying one thing, and we got good people saying another. So they send Paul and Barnabas, along with others, to Jerusalem. Look at verse 2 of Acts 15. And after Paul and Barnabas, check it, (laughs) had no small dissension and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others, check it, were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Notice that Paul and Barnabas, although very influential, they're not autonomous. You notice that? That means they're not independent. They're he- I mean, Paul and Barnabas, they just come back from, 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 from Asia Minor. Bare churches, bare disciples. You'd be like, whoa, them, them brothers are heavy. But they're not independent. They're not like, well, you know what? <laughs> Check the CV, fam. Look at, our, look at our resume. Nobody can't tell us nothing because it all speaks for us. So here what? Barnabas. Well, you say we go and do this or we go and do that. No, you don't get any of that from these brothers. Verse 2 says they were appointed to go up to Jerusalem. They didn't just say, you know what? I've had enough of this long talk from you, you and you. Here what? We're going to Jerusalem and we're going to draw for the man them down there, the rest of the apostles, to deal with this matter. They don't do that. It says they were appointed. They were not self-governing or self-determining. Now, this should go without say, but how many of you know there are so many in the ministry that you can't tell them nothing? I mean, you want to challenge someone in a church, you better pack your bags and put them by the door. Because you know once you challenge your question, they're going to throw you out. Now, now I'm, I'm having to, to emphasise this point because the circumstances are so contradictory today. Pastors and leaders that no one can talk to. You've got individuals in the ministry committing adultery with someone in the church and the elders just turn a blind eye like it ain't happening. Don't tell me. I'm not even asking you. I'm... Don't tell me it's not happening. Where one, where one pastor's just like, you know what? Ain't really feeling this wife anymore. Ain't feeling this woman no more. So hey, I'm going to put her away and get myself a next wife. And it's nothing. And next week he's back in the pulpit. Everybody in the church went to his wedding. Just completely arbitrary. And where's the, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. They're not lone rangers. I mean, and can you question or challenge the the, the way that God is using these men? Yet they're not overinflated. They're not full of themselves. They are leaders, yet they're under submission. And notice that the church in Antioch, as powerful, 
just look, take the spotlight off of Paul and Barnabas. Now put it on the church. Because remember, if somebody sending them, they're heavy, but someone's sending them. So whoever's sending them must be saying something. So think about the church now at Antioch. Because there's three other leaders that was up there. Remember when we done Acts chapter 13? Simeon called Niger and two others. I can't remember the names. So there's at least three other elders there, probably of another team of leaders. Check it. The church in Antioch, as powerful and as influential and as, as, as significant as they are, they are also mutually submitted to the apostles in Jerusalem. They're not like, what? What, what you lot want to come up here, come chat some next doctrine? Yep. You lot better just go back to Jerusalem before we throw you back down to Jerusalem. Now, you see what I'm saying? Now, this is what very often we see happening, but they don't do that. They're like, this is a serious issue. And as much as we could probably come to a, a determined decision, hear what? Let's draw for the man, down in, the man down in Jerusalem. And they mutually submit themselves. I tell you, we've got a lot to learn. May God help us go back to the pattern. You, know, you, you think to yourself, you wonder to yourself, how come the church don't work? How come the church so mash up? Well, you know why? It's because we, we've walked away from the blueprint. How many of you know when, when Noah made the ark, it didn't sink? Why? Because he made it according to the pattern that God had ordained. But you look at the church's mash up. You're like, you're embarrassed. Yeah. You go to church. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes. You know what I mean? It's like, because, but if we get back to the pattern, I mean, in the book of Acts, it says the people who were not believers looked at the church and feared. Yet the church grew. That means people are standing up looking at the church feeling like, oh, you know what, look, it's them brothers there. Which ones? You know them heavy brothers, them brothers that walk in with God. Yeah, I heard about something that happened. That's how they used to talk about the church. Not, you're a what? You're a Christian. What, Jesus has got you for a sunbeam? Now that's what they used to say to me when I got saved in the post office. Man used to cuss, used to trace me. I felt, I mean, if I wasn't saved and sanctified, Holy Ghost filled and water back, if I never knew the Lord, if I never knew the Lord, I would have been like, you know what, jack this in for a laugh. You know what I mean? But God had saved me and he helped me to get through, like in the parable of the sower, remember? The seed is sown by the wayside, that's hard soil. And the soil is indicative of the heart. The birds of the air just come down and eat that. Because the heart's so hard, the seed bounces off of that heart, right? That person, the Bible says, hears Matthew 13. They hear the word and they don't even understand it. And they've gone back their business. The second category is where the seed falls on rocky soil. Or I used to think it was dirt with loads of stones, loads of rocks in it. It's not. It's rock with a very thin layer of soil. And it says the seed is sown and it's thin soil but it's enough for the seed to go down. And because there's no, there's no depth for, of soil, the seed come, the plant comes up really quickly. Right? And the Bible says, Jesus says that the sun comes out 
and it scorches that plant. And because it ain't got no root in itself, what happens to the plant? It withers and it just dies. Now we ain't got time to talk about the parable of the sower. Jesus said about this parable, if you don't understand this parable, how are you going to understand any other parable? Vitally important parable. And, and essentially what he's talking about is true and false conversion. The first three types of soil are all false converts. It's only the fourth one that actually bears fruit that is a genuine believer. And I said I weren't going to talk about it, right? But I'm saying, if in that situation when they started to castigate me, and I mean, if God hadn't genuinely saved me, I would have just withered up and just died. But thank God that he had allowed my roots. If you've been saved, you know what I'm saying, for a, a, a period of time, not just five, you know, five weeks or five months, but you've been in the faith five years, 10, 15, 20 years, thank the Lord, because your, your roots have gone down deep. And rather than the sun scorch you, photosynthesis takes place and the sun benefits you. You know what I'm saying? See, let's let, let, and you only get strong when you live your life according to the word, according to the pattern. You know what I mean? So may God help us as individuals to do that, and us as churches, us as a church. And I mean, just to, let's just get back to the pattern. Let's just let's just keep it Bible. You know what I mean? So. This church, they're mutually submitted to the apostles in Jerusalem. The leaders are mutually submitted one to another. See, nobody gets away without being held responsible and accountable. Everyone is answerable. That's why we're bringing in membership. Swiftly moving on. Whether you're, check it, whether you're an archbishop or an usher, everybody is accountable. Now, these troublemakers, they were not denying that Jesus was the savior. They were saying that Jesus wasn't enough. Confusing the issue of faith and works. Now, something that seems like an apparent contradiction in scripture. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, Paul says, we are saved by our faith and not by our works, which is what I've just been hammering, right? But then James says something that seems to contradict, but it doesn't. James says, faith without works is dead. You see the quote-unquote apparent possible contradiction? Now this is it. Watch this. Yes, works need to be there, says James. Evidentially, not instrumentally. Evidentially, not instrumentally. Works are necessary, but we have to ask, in what way are they necessary? Yes, works are necessary as evidence of your faith. Because James is looking at it from a natural point of view, saying, okay, you say you're a Christian? Hmm, well, let me see. From a natural point of view. Paul is looking at the, the believer from a heavenly point of view. And God is only, he's the only one that can see into the heart. And he can tell whether or not we're saved. So he doesn't need to, mm, let me see the evidence. Because God knows. But we need the evidence. Where's the fruit in your life? You chat about God and you're carrying a knife? I'll try to remember the end of the lyric. How did it go? 
Where's the fruit in your life? You chat about God and you're carrying a knife. It's like rolling a dice. You're going to lose in it and, and it ain't very nice. That's, that's one of my son's lyrics. See? Works are necessary as evidence of your faith. But no, says Paul, no, works are not necessary as the instrument through which you are saved. No, works are not the instrument. Works are evidential, but not instrumental. Evidentially, that is, evidence to prove that you have faith. Not instrumentally, as in something that achieves your salvation. Now here are some classic modern day examples of modern day troublemakers. Now, I'm the type of person that gets myself into trouble very often. So I'm going to, be, I'm going to try and be careful about what I say. But I was a Roman Catholic. And when I, be, when I was on the, in the process of becoming a Christian, I was like, what did that priest say? I was like, what? I used to stop priests in the street. Remember last week we had a brother here that come from a Sikh background and he shared, quote unquote, his testimony. I do ask you to, I do, I do apologize if that was overly offensive to some. And I mean, now that's him and that's his story. I was a Catholic. When I tell you I was so angry with Roman Catholicism when I became a, I was like, I used to stop priests in the street. I remember being in Stockwell one time. They had some passion parade thing where this priest, he had a long robe on and some other parishioner was carrying a cross and it was all solemn. I tell you, I never even... You know, you know when you see that and you're not a Christian, you're like, oh, and you kind of stand still or you don't move because you want to show reverence. I was like, I need to talk to this brother. And I went over to him and I was like, What's the deal with praying to Mary? The Bible says there's, this, there's one mediator between God and man, and it's the man Christ Jesus. What's the deal? I mean, the, and he completely, when I tell you he was heavy, he completely ignored me. <laughs> and he, Helen and myself went to her brother's um, child's baptism. Now, we had a dedication last week. We don't do baptism, not with babies. And went to this baptism, and it was a Catholic church. And the priest was there, check it, casting out demons out the baby. I've sent at the back. Casting out demons out the baby, made a sign of the cross on the baby's head with the quote, holy water, quote-unquote. And then he started chatting about, now we have received you into the kingdom of God and you are now a child of God. And I tell you, I was, at about that point, I was ready to just jump out my seat. My wife, Helen, had to, literally had to say, Robert, <laughs> behave yourself. I was like, all right, you wait to the end of the service. <laughs> and, I, and I did. I stepped to the bread up. But Roman Catholicism. They say, believe in Jesus. A lie? But, make sure you don't forget the sacraments. 
Because if you get licked down out on road, you better get a priest to come read you the last rites. Or you're heading for purgatory. <laughs> can't even say the word. You're heading for this place that don't even exist. Yet people, they trust in and rely on the sacraments. We ain't got time to go through them. It's Jesus plus. You must. Jehovah's Witnesses. Straight up and down. Yeah. We had Jehovah's Witnesses come to my house for six months before I became a Christian. I think that's the only good thing the Lord ever done in my life with regard to Jehovah's Witnesses. Because they switched me on at least to the Bible. It's God's providence. I mean, God was drawing me, God was calling me. You know what I mean? I'm my wife at the time. Jehovah's Witnesses come round our house every single Sunday like, Helen, what's the time? Oh, it's four o'clock. Ding dong. That was them. <laughs> and we'd sit down with them. And after about six months, Helen's like, Robert, are you thinking about becoming a Jehovah's Witness? I was like, yeah, man. Them people, they know the Bible, you know. Helen said to me, I would never become a Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> Well, see, she was like Paul. She weren't having it. And thank the Lord that she never had it. Because I might be in a different place <laughs> this morning. See, they say you have to become a part of their organization. They'll introduce you to Jesus. Or another Jesus. And then say you must. Because if you don't, you cannot be saved. Seven-day Adventism. You must keep the Sabbath. We'll, they will tell you about Jesus all day, and if you don't listen carefully, you'll be like, "Hey, they're all right." And you miss the part where they say, "But you must keep the Sabbath, brother." Oh, oh, oh! You can't eat pork. Vegetables. Uh, no shellfish. Huh? No more chicken chow mein and prawns. <laughs> now, I can't eat them stuff because, you know, I don't know if you know, I've got a thing, um, I've got an allergy for fresh shellfish, so I come up like, you seen Hitch, where my man eats the thing, and he's like, that's me when I eat shellfish. But I don't eat it because... Because I can't. I, can't eat. I don't eat it because I don't want to. I eat it because I can't. But they say you mustn't. Not for the same reasons. But for legal re You want to be saved. Well if you do that. Then you run the risk of losing your salvation. Mormonism. That's the group that I mentioned. With regard to Paul in Galatians 1 saying. If me or even an angel tells you anything different from the gospel, the good news that you've heard about Christ, plus nothing, don't believe them. And that's exactly what they do. Because they say, come to Jesus, and they'll tell you about forgiveness like Bertram this morning. And they'll tell you about the cross, and his blood, and his sacrifice. But! You must also accept with all authority, on a parallel with the Bible, the Book of Mormon. 
Where'd that come from, fam? Oh, the angel Moroni. I mean, it's so, bl- it's so blatant. And you ask them, why do you believe this? I got a burning heart in my, I got a burning in my bosom. That's how it originally comes. Is it Ohio? Is, is it, I don't know, somewhere in the States where it started. Utah, Utah. And I got a burning in my, how you know? Because I got a, a burning in my bosom. You never heard that? See? Now here's one that's real close to home. And one I'm really concerned about, particularly as we do ministry in Jamaica. There's a, there's a Pentecostal church called the Oneness or the Unitarian Pentecostals. You ever heard of them? You've got to be careful because they're what they call Jesus only. And it sounds like everything that we're talking about. Jesus plus nothing. Jesus only. But it's not because they believe that Jesus is the Father and the Father is Jesus and the Spirit is Jesus. God is really only one person. There is no father. So when Jesus came down on the earth, it was actually the father. It wasn't. It's the same person. And it's really confusing. And on top of that, and that's not even, I mean, that's one thing. But on top of that, they say, you can't be saved unless you're baptized. And baptized in a particular way. In Jesus, don't come with the, what, you got baptized? What, you're, you're a Christian? How is it? When did you get saved? I got saved 10 years ago and it's wonderful. I thank the Lord and I praise the Lord. When, when did you get baptized, bruv? Oh, I got baptized a year after I got saved. Is it? Okay. In what name did you get baptized? I got baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know what, you, bruv, you're so close. It? You're so close, but you're yet so far away. You need to get baptized in Jesus' name. See, this is Jesus plus the other madness. Baptism doesn't save you. Okay, so there's some examples. There's some examples. I said I was going to tell you a personal example. About after, when was it? I remember being a baby Christian back in 1991. Um, It was a year after I got married. Me and Helen got married. So um, that's nearly 20 years ago, right? And I think I had been a Christian at that time about two years. Because, yeah, we got saved for a year and then boom, we got married. And then a year later, we went to this Bible study. Was it in Brixton, Helen? I think it was in Brixton. And I tell you, bare young people in this Bible study. It was, it, was, it was beautiful. It was wonderful. Young people loved the Lord. We were just, just getting excited about Jesus. No drugs, no liquor, no music, just Bible. The music kind of came after because it, it seemed like it was our generation that took the music, not me personally, our generation of Christians that took music, Christian music to the next level. You know what I mean? That, that generation the Lord used. So we was there back and forth from about 7 till about 10, 11, midnight and about 6 weeks later this brother walks in and when this guy comes in he just, at first you just thought it was another brother oh another guy got saved or another Christian were fellowshipping together after a few weeks, and check it this, this guy always used to kind of look at you out the corner of his eye he'd shake your hand 
you know what I'm saying? It was, that's what it was like. And he'd give you a hug, but it was always like, like a half hug. And then he dropped the bomb in it. I was like, hey, you know what? There's a couple of verses in Acts I've been thinking about. And then he starts to talk about, you know, there are different portions. We've looked at a few of them where it says you need to be baptized and baptized and they baptize in Jesus' name. You know what I mean? Like you can take a verse and isolate it and build a doctrine on it. That's not correct biblical exegesis. So anyway, this brother goes on to start talking about, you lot, did you realize that, man, check it. You've got to get baptized in Jesus' name and all. How many of you have been baptized in Jesus? And he started going off on this. And I tell you, there was one guy there, tall guy, I won't mention his name, tall guy, good looking brother. I think he had literally like weeks just got saved. And this guy, this deceiver, this troublemaker, inveigled this brother and took him to one side. And six months later, this guy weren't even walking with the Lord. Furthermore, they had to section him. I'm a lion, Helen. Judaizer. Come and chat about what you got ain't enough. What do you mean Jesus ain't enough? Come and take away my faith in Christ. And he messed up that young man's life. And there was a couple other people that got mixed up in it. It just got, me- it got messy. And again, God saved us. He kept us through the madness. I'm telling you, this is a serious issue. You know what Jesus said in Matthew 23? Listen. Verse 13, he says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves, nor allow those who would enter to go in. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you travel across, across sea and land to make a single proselyte as a convert. And when he becomes a convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell than you yourselves, you hypocrites. Read Matthew 23. If you've got a red letter edition of the Bible, it's all red. Jesus don't come up for air. See, and these are the people that the Lord just empties the clip. Because these people, evidently as we've been going through it, you see where this leads. Shut the door on yourselves and them, it's not good. See, these all teach that works are instrumental. The Bible teaches that works are evidential. So the ideal is to celebrate, celebrate grace and pursue holiness. All right, I'm just going to read the text now because we're done. Verse 3. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. See, they're on their way now to Jerusalem. Remember, they've been sent. So they're going down to Jerusalem now to go and catch up with the elders about this issue and brought great joy to all the brothers on their way. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. 
On their way to Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas reported the success of their ministry among the Gentiles to the saints in Phoenicia and Samaria, which was met with great rejoicing from these individuals. One would assume that they were Gentiles. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and they gave a similar report concerning the success of their first missionary journey. They're catching up with Jerusalem now with what's been going on. Some did not find this an occasion for rejoicing, but instead took this as an opportunity to press their demands that Gentile converts must be required to be circumcised and to keep the law of Moses. Verse 5, it's necessary. You have to order them to keep the law. Now we're going to pick up from this point next week. Question before we pray. Are you trusting in Jesus? See, before I can ask you, are you trusting in Jesus plus? First of all, are you even trusting in Jesus? You might be here, invited by a friend, come along. Never heard about Jesus. Well, the Bible says that he paid the penalty for your sins that eventually will take you to a place called hell, which is eternal separation from God. Eternally. And you may let, well, I didn't even realize that I was going to hell. Well, don't have time to explain it, but that's the truth. And it's because of your sin, because of my sin, because of our sin. But Jesus came and he paid the penalty like a ransom for you who've been enslaved in the dark, blindfolded, under the control of the prince of the power of the air, which is synonymous with the devil. Living your own life, you think. But Jesus come to rescue you. You've been kidnapped. Jesus come to rescue you. See, and that's the good news. That's the gospel. And this is the message that Paul was trying to protect. And it's the message that we are communicating. God loves you. And he doesn't want you to perish. But you will if you continue to walk in your sin. Have you accepted Jesus? For those of us that have, is it Jesus plus your good works? And I have to say this because so many of us could be in this place where you wake up in the morning, this morning. God, my life's a wreck. I know I say I'm a Christian, but I don't act like a Christian. God, I don't even think I'm saved. And you say that because you haven't been working. Because you haven't been doing good stuff. Yet you've trusted in Christ. Yet you put your faith in him. You begged him to save you. And he's faithful to do that. To the uttermost. Those who put their trust in him. I said, now why do you feel so downbeat? Why do you feel so distraught? Like God doesn't love you anymore. He's adopted you. You're in his family. So you don't have to beat upon yourself. God beat upon Jesus. 
so that it wouldn't have to beat upon you. So stop beating upon yourself. And just put your faith in Jesus alone, apart from any good thing that you've done. Because then really what you're saying is, well, I've been good today. I went to Bible study. I prayed this morning. I read my Bible. Hmm. God must be pleased with me. No. Don't go down that road. You end up with the Judaizers who get shut outside the door. Put your faith in Christ alone and apart from your good works. And allow that truth to penetrate your heart. And it will lead to worship. It will lead to gratefulness. You'll be so consumed with what God has done for you, it will absolutely eclipse anything that you feel like you could have done for him. You know what I'm saying? Let's pray. Father, thank you that for by grace are we saved through faith. And that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Thank you that salvation, it says in Romans 5, five times is a gift. And there's nothing that we can do to merit it. Our good deeds are like filthy rags. Father, I pray that you'd forgive today individuals who recognize that and that they turn from their good works, they would repent of their dead works and have faith toward God. They'd express faith toward you today because of what Jesus has done for them. Father, because of what Jesus has done for us, we're in your family. Thank you. Thank you. We don't deserve to be in your house. We don't deserve to be able to call you Father. We don't deserve the blessings and the benefits and eternal life with you forever. We don't deserve it. But thank you that it's not based on our deserving it. It's based on your mercy. And all we can say is thank you. No boasting. Thank you. And I pray, Father, that you'd help us to preach the gospel to ourselves every day and remind ourselves of what you've done in order to bring us in and to maintain our relationship with you. We can be confident of this very thing, that you who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. So I'm listening I'll be where I